As we continue to learn about the story of the Bible in Arabic, we need to look at what the particular contemporary challenges are to translating the Bible in Muslim contexts, as well as understand missiological trends that affect the way people might translate. These are not always easy things to grasp with nuance and wisdom, which perhaps is why some organizations have banned their members from any public discussion of the issues. So we're going to do our best to patiently explore these things and see what we can learn and hopefully proceed with humility and fairness by God's grace. This is the Working for the Word podcast, and I'm Andrew Case. Now, obviously, we could spend 20 hours talking about the theology of Islam, Muslim cultures, and different countries, and more, but we'll have to leave that to your own personal research. There are a million YouTube videos and articles out there that explain these things, so I'll endeavor to keep this series more to the point of Bible translation without straying too far into other waters. But as I already said, it's helpful to discuss some background issues that are pertinent, which directly affect the Bible translation movement in Muslim contexts. So let's begin with some observations from a translation consultant from the United Bible Societies named Isa Diab who is also a professor of Semitic and Christian Muslim studies in Beirut. He wrote an article for the Bible Translator Journal back in 2010, around the time when controversial translation theory in Muslim contexts was beginning to heat up. Now, the article is titled, Challenges Facing Bible Translation in the Islamic Context of the Middle East. He writes, The Bible is viewed by the majority of Christians of the Middle East as... One, the same word of God, dictated by God directly or indirectly, coming to us exactly as first written by the authors. Two, infallible even in historical and scientific matters. Three, composed of sacred words which should be carefully preserved. This letterist view of the Bible presents the task of Bible translation with the following challenges. Number one, many Christians think that having many translations is not a good witness to the truth of the Bible in an Islamic context because it suggests many Bibles. Christians should have only one Bible just as Muslims have only one Quran. Number two, this one Bible, quote unquote, in the local language, always the oldest translation, gains the status of inspired, much as the KJV in the West. It becomes the Vulgate of the church. Number three, even when the necessity for another translation is accepted, the quote-unquote inspired translation is considered as a textus receptus and the basis of comparison in the evaluation of any new translation. And I would argue that this is the same in pretty much every country that I've encountered Like Mexico, the Reina Valera is the Textus Receptus that everyone compares every other Bible to. Number four, literal translations are the most venerated by Middle Eastern audiences. The Islamic view of the Quran has influenced the tendency of Middle Eastern Christians to quote-unquote sanctify the very words of the Bible. These original or sacred words should be respected and literally transmitted in other languages. Dynamic translations are not taken seriously and cannot be, 
quote-unquote official scripture or used in liturgy. For Middle Easterners, Christian and Muslim, the purpose of any sacred text is to create reverence, fear, and mystery in the mind of its readers. Ambiguity and lack of understandability are expected. And I would add a parenthesis here. This is basically, everything he's describing here is basically the case in most Western contexts that I've experienced and also in Africa. So, I'm going to keep going. These challenges are caused mainly by different concepts of inspiration and the theology of the Word of God. But other kinds of challenges further complicate the picture. Since Christian denominations are, to a certain extent, ethnic tribes, the decision of the head of the church is weighty and strongly influences the attitudes of members, including scholars. In most cases, the heads of churches are neither scholars nor specialists. They fight to conserve the tradition of their churches, as influenced by their conflicting histories. To a great extent, the historical churches of the Middle East are still psychologically, emotionally, and even theologically in the climate of the Middle Ages. The wounds of the Christological conflicts of the 4th and 5th centuries, of the extension of Islam in the 7th century, of the iconoclastic conflict of the 8th century, and of the Great Schism in the 11th century have not totally healed. End quote. Then he goes on to write, The Old Testament is a scandalous book in the context of the Arabic and Islamic world not only for Muslims, but for Christians too. And parentheses here, to be honest, where in the world is the Old Testament not a scandalous book? He goes on, Marcion's controversy is always present. This is the book of the Jews. The anti-Israel nationalistic parties, which include many Christians, consider the Old Testament as a political text, forged and interpreted to support the Zionist movement and the quote-unquote Christian West in the usurpation of Palestinian rights, identifying Islam with terrorism, and waging a harsh war against Muslims in their territories. In addition to this, humanists see this as a book that supports racism, injustice, human rights, usurpation, and genocide. On the other hand, and because of its ambiguity, the Old Testament is sometimes considered a book of magic, or the book of esoteric secret groups. This quote-unquote mysterious aspect of the Old Testament makes it desirable to some intellectuals, politicians, parapsychologists, and curious people in general. And then he continues, it is possible to describe an aim or scopos for a translation project, which in full awareness of such audience expectations, seeks to challenge and modify the prevailing view and so contribute positively to intercommunal relationships. In what follows, I offer some suggestions and recommendations to help the people of the Middle East become liberated from the Quranic view, which venerates and idolizes the written sacred words. I suggest teaching about the nature of the Bible, with a focus not only on the divine role, but also on the human contributions in the writing, reviewing, and editing of the sacred texts. Bible society translations have largely avoided theological engagement and interpretation. 
Now the results of this avoidance should be studied and evaluated in order to assess if it has helped or harmed the mission of Bible translation. In sum, as Bible societies, our task in the Middle East is to translate the Christian Bible with its Greek and Hebrew cultures into vernacular Middle Eastern languages that are immersed in Islamic culture. The solution is neither to Islamize the Bible nor to force Greek and Hebrew concepts on Islamic culture, but to create a cultural mediation. And he continues to write, I believe that the United Bible Societies should become more involved in the fields of biblical studies, hermeneutics, and theology in order to promote credible views of the human role in writing, revising, and canonizing the books of the Bible. Once this human role is obvious, the text can be criticized and contextualized. I also recommend creating, with Islam, an interculture, a space for Christian-Muslim dialogue that will provide opportunities for mutual presenting and understanding. As a translation consultant with UBS, I see my mission to Muslims as including helping them to be liberated from the blind use of the sacred text witnessing to all peoples that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that we can know about him in the Bible, and helping the followers of Jesus to stay in their culture and society and build up their own theology. This is a mission of building bridges and of translating a Bible for peace, end quote. A lot of good stuff in there. For instance, I completely agree that doing Bible translation has to go hand in hand with doing theology, hermeneutics, and biblical studies. To try to pretend that one can be neutral about those things and do Bible translation, to me, is a bit naive. But Diab ultimately begs the question as to what healthy biblical bridges look like between the Christian world and the Muslim world. We all love to talk about building bridges, but building bridges is hard, complex, and often ends up in a lot of disagreement. He talks about the contextualization of Scripture, but leaves us asking what exactly it means to contextualize Scripture in the Muslim world. What are the guardrails for this? What are some concrete examples? Of course, I'm not criticizing him for not addressing these things in detail because he had a word limit on the article. But I want to point out that whenever we start talking about contextualization, we have to be clear how it can be distinguished from compromise. When does contextualization become syncretism? When do we have to ask with the Apostle Paul, what fellowship has light with darkness? How far is too far, and can we learn the limits of contextualization from the Bible? These are important questions that we need to answer for ourselves, and I would argue that we need to have more gracious, peaceful Christian dialogue about them in the public sphere. Now, as you can imagine, since some organizations have forbidden their members from engaging publicly about these kinds of controversial issues, I couldn't find anyone on the more progressive side of these debates who was willing to come on the podcast and talk about their perspective. I definitely tried, so we'll have to content ourselves with hearing from their written work. So, I want to begin with an article that describes a missiological perspective called Insider Movements, or IM. It's written by Rebecca Lewis, who has been working with her husband with Frontier's mission in Muslim ministry since the 1980s, including eight years in North Africa. In 2007, she wrote an article for the International Journal of Frontier Missiology. It's called 
promoting movements to Christ within natural communities. Here's what she says. An insider movement is any movement to faith in Christ where A, the gospel flows through pre-existing communities and social networks, and where B, believing families as valid expressions of the body of Christ remain inside their socio-religious communities, retaining their identity as members of that community while living under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of the Bible. Now, she went on to write another article in the spring of 2009 called Insider Movements, Honoring God-Given Identity and Community. Now, I want you to hear some of this article at length so that we have a fair representation of what we're talking about here from people who are some of the main promoters of insider movements. She writes, How can the gospel take root within pre-existing communities in such a way that the community or network becomes the main expression of church in that context? To understand why this factor is important in insider movements, let's contrast planting a church with implanting a church. Typically, when people plant a church, they create a new social group. Individual believers, often strangers to one another, are gathered together into new fellowship groups. Church planters try to help these individual believers become like a family or a community. This pattern of aggregate church planting, also termed the attractional model, can work in individualistic Western societies. However, in societies with tightly knit communities, the community is undermined when believers are taken out of their families into new authority structures. The affected families frequently perceive the new group as having, quote-unquote, stolen their relative, and the spread of the gospel is understandably opposed. Even if the new fellowship group is very contextualized to the culture, the community feels threatened and the believers feel torn between their family and the group. By contrast, a church is implanted when the gospel takes root within pre-existing community, and like yeast, spreads within that community. No longer does a new group try to become like a family. Instead, the God-given family or social group becomes the church. The strong relational bonds already exist. What is new is their commitment to Jesus Christ. Believers within the pre-existing family or community network gradually learn how to provide spiritual fellowship for each other, and testimonies and praise arise within their everyday interactions, as in Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. The joy of the believers begins to infect the whole group. This type of church, also termed the transformational model, was birthed in many households in Acts, such as those of Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer. The redemption of pre-existing communities is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. When the gospel is implanted in this manner, the families and clans that God created are redeemed and transformed instead of broken apart. The larger community and society are also blessed in significant ways as believers mature spiritually while maintaining their relational networks. The gospel is not seen as a threat to the community, and an insider movement develops as the gospel flows into neighboring relational networks. Because believers remain in their families and networks, insider movements honor God-given community. Number two, believers retain their socio-religious identity. 
In many countries today, it is almost impossible for a new follower of Christ to remain in vital relationship with their community without also retaining their socio-religious identity. In these places, the term Christian does not mean a sincere believer in Jesus Christ. In India, for example, Christian has become a socio-religious political category, like Muslim, Hindu, tribal, etc., written on one's identity card at birth. Though the categories may vary, similar practices exist in other countries as well. Changing one's identity from Muslim or Hindu to Christian is often illegal or is viewed as betrayal by one's family and friends. However, the gospel can still spread freely in such places when insider believers gain a new spiritual identity, living under the lordship of Christ and the authority of the Bible, but retain their socio-religious identity. Does one have to go through Christianity to enter God's family? The New Testament addresses a nearly identical question. Do all believers in Jesus Christ have to go through Judaism in order to enter God's family? It is important to realize that for both questions, the nature of the gospel itself is at stake. The woman at the well in John 4 at first refused Jesus' offer of eternal life because, as a Samaritan, she followed an Abrahamic religion that the Jews reviled as corrupt. As a result, she could not go to the temple or become a Jew. But Jesus distinguished true faith from religious affiliation, saying God was seeking true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and truth. Realizing that Jesus was the Savior of the world, not just of the Jews, many Samaritans in her town believed. Later in Acts, we see that Samaritan believers remained in their own communities and retained their Samaritan identity. But at first, the disciples did not understand that just as they could remain Jews and follow Jesus, the Samaritans could also remain Samaritan. Then the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles that even the Gentile believers from pagan backgrounds did not have to go through Judaism in order to enter God's family, Acts 15. In Antioch, Jewish believers were telling Gentile believers that they must become Jews to be fully acceptable to God. Paul disagreed and brought the issue to the lead apostles in Jerusalem. The issue was hotly debated because the Jews had believed for centuries that conversion to the Jewish religion was required to become part of the people of God. But the Holy Spirit showed the Jewish apostles they should not burden Gentile followers of Christ with their religious traditions and forms. To make this decision, the apostles used two criteria, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles coming to Christ, and the guidance of Scripture, Acts 15, 5-19. First, they heard that the Holy Spirit had descended on believers from a pagan background who were not practicing the Jewish religion. Second, they realized the Scriptures had predicted that this would happen. These two criteria were sufficient for the apostles to conclude that God was behind this new movement of believers who were remaining Gentile. Therefore, they did not oppose it or add on demands for religious conversion. If we use the same two criteria today, insider movements affirm that people do not have to go through the religion of Christianity, but only through Jesus Christ to enter God's family. Paul wanted people to understand that this truth has been part of the gospel from the beginning. 
He pointed out that God promised Abraham that all people groups would receive the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ alone, Galatians 3, 8 through 26. As a result, Paul publicly rebuked Peter and Barnabas for not acting in line with the truth of the gospel when they forced Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Paul warned that to add religious conversion to following Christ would nullify the gospel. He also affirmed that not through any religion, but through the gospel, the Gentiles are made heirs together in the promise of Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3.6. Thus, the gospel reveals that a person can gain a new spiritual identity without leaving one's birth identity and without taking on a new socio-religious label or going through the religion of either Judaism or Christianity. So, what do we do when working in unreached people groups with strong community structures? Can we see that the Muslims are like our Samaritans with their Abrahamic religion, and the Hindus are like our Gentiles with their idols and temples? Yet, like the Samaritans and the Gentiles, through the gospel alone, they can be made heirs together with us in the promise of Christ Jesus. So, how can we emphasize the gospel, not religious conversion? How can we encourage the gospel to take root within their God-given communities, redeeming and transforming them? Here are some suggestions. Number one, when entering a community, look for a person seeking God who wants to invite you into their family or community to talk about Jesus. Invest in those people as a group. Do not move around from house to house. Luke 10, 7. Two, when witnessing, tell people they do not have to join a quote-unquote Christian people group in order to be saved. Instead, point them directly to a relationship with God through Christ. Many have been taught that Jesus is only the Savior of the Christians instead of the Savior of the world. Help them understand this idea is not true, like Jesus did in John 4.23. Number three, if well-meaning Christians tell seekers that they must come to God not just through Christ, but also through Christianity, help the Christians understand this requirement is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Number four, when discipling, encourage believers to remain within their God-giving communities. Show them that Jesus said they will be like yeast in the dough or a light that illumines the whole household. Help them become the church within their own pre-existing communities instead of isolating themselves by joining a group outside their community for fellowship. Encourage believers to study the word together within their communities and to seek guidance from the Holy Spirit. John 16:4, Acts 20:32. Trust the Holy Spirit as the apostles did to guide the new believers and to redeem their pagan or heretical religious practices as he chooses, which may vary from one insider movement to another. Let the nations be glad that they too have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. This is the power of the gospel, end quote. So there is a lot of really nice stuff said in this article, a lot of stuff that I would totally agree with. But unfortunately, it deals with an incredible amount of ambiguity. So it leaves us with a lot of questions. What does this actually mean in the day-to-day life of a convert within a Muslim context? For example, do they still bow down towards Mecca every day? Do they still proclaim that Muhammad is the prophet of God? Since those are core elements of socio-religious identity. 
And also another issue that I have with this article, of course, there's word limits with articles and all of that, but it definitely is cherry picking passages of scripture that fit with that paradigm and not dealing with all the objections and all of the passages that would be counterexamples. Honestly, the more you study the ministry of Jesus, the more you see that he almost never missed a chance to turn someone away from the faith, from following him, because he put a very, very difficult obstacle in their way. An obvious example comes from Matthew 19, 16 through 30, the rich young man. And what does he want to do? He wants to enter the kingdom of God. He's coming to Jesus and asking how he can enter the kingdom of God. And finally, he, you know, he's done all of the right things, it seems, and Jesus then drops a massive barrier in his way. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, of course, for a rich person to then become poor would necessarily imply that he would alienate himself from his bubble of rich friends and community. And then following Jesus would necessitate him to actually physically abandon his community. And then Jesus drops another bomb when he's talking to the disciples right after this. And he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Or then you have another really obvious one like Luke 9, 59 and 60, where Jesus says to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Of course, you've never seen that held up as an example or model of great evangelism. I'm pretty sure that would have the same effect in every single culture or socio-religious context. (laughs) It would definitely turn that potential disciple away in a hurry. But we have to grapple with it. We have to. I mean, that's what we do as Christians. We're followers of Jesus, and we have to grapple with what he did and how he did it. So, if you're going to write serious stuff about missiology, you have to take these kinds of things into account because everybody is going to be thinking of them when you're making these kinds of statements in this article. So, anyway, back to the question. Practically, what does this mean? What does it mean to be an insider in the day in and day out? Well, according to some insider movement advocates, we should allow the possibility that proclaiming the Shahada, including affirming Muhammad's prophethood, in some ways does not inherently preclude biblical faithfulness. Also, some advocate that they can still consider the Quran as scripture and that the Quran accepts Jesus as a messenger from God and the gospel as his message, so it's okay. And they also argue that the pillars of Islam are all adaptations of previous Jewish and Christian forms in a refurbished form. And one more example, which is the most relevant to this podcast, an insider Christian would not need to call Jesus the Son of God in order to avoid isolating or alienating themselves from their socio-religious context or community. Now, as I admitted at the beginning of the series, I am not an expert on Islam or the Middle East, and I have never met one of these insiders myself personally. I have never lived in a Muslim context. So, let's stop here and listen to some people who are experts in this. Mike Tisdell, Joshua Lingle, David Harriman, and Fred Farouk, and listen to what they have to say from their perspective about what they've seen in the insider movement. Good to be with you. 
brothers, Mike, Josh, and Dave. I'm Fred Farouk, as you know, and I'm a Muslim background Christian. I'm very thankful for the efforts of everyone who's tried to share the gospel with Muslim people. Mm-hmm. I understand that that historically has not been that easy, and therefore we wouldn't be too surprised that people would be experimenting with try- how to try to mm-hmm. reach Muslims with the gospel. Uh, we have become, aw- even though I've been a Christian for 35 years or so, I only became aware of a missional experiment that's been going on for about that long, and it's been called insider movements. I just became aware of this in the last decade. And just so we're all on the same page, uh, insider movement advocates, they've described or defined insider movement believers as those who remain inside their socio-religious community, retaining the retaining the identity of that socio-religious community, while at the same time living under the authority of Jesus Christ and the Bible. So that's the kind of working definition of insider movements, and I became aware of this uh, in my own life just about a decade ago with great concerns. they're, they're They're in Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, but they're trying to follow Jesus. Yes. In the context of that religion or as a culture. Yes. So we would hear you would hear words like Jesus Muslims, Hindu followers of Jesus, Muslim insiders. Uh, I, I believe we'll probably talk primarily about insider movements in Muslim context because that's where it started, but it has been expanded to other contexts. So how have you fellows been? Uh, what has your been experience with IM? Well, uh, I, I, I got involved in, with insider movements. Really, I was uh, happenstance. I had. Uh, I was at actually a vineyard conference for pastors mm-hmm. in Southern California, and I had a, uh, a missionary who had come from uh, Indonesia and wanted to pull me aside because I, I, taught under, I taught undergrad and grad school at Biola University and uh, Talbot School of Theology in the Biblical Studies Department, <clears throat> and my course was Christian Apologetics to Islam. So I was interested in reaching Muslims. Uh, I was called to that since I was 18. And this missionary began to tell me how he would uh, call himself a Muslim. Hmm. He would go into a mosque. He would uh, pray like Muslims do uh, in the mosque. Uh, he would preach. He, he would use. A, he was in no connection with churches, and he would call you know call himself a Muslim, pray like a Muslim, preach uh, from the Quran, and things like that. And uh, I just thought the guy was kind of kind of weird, kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And had numbers of kinds of experiences like that. And when I was in, uh, in uh, Cyprus, uh, one woman was talking to me about this, confronting me about the issues, that we should address those issues. I, I walked away from that experience with her, and the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said to walk in and confront the insider movements. Mm-hmm. And we, I was the one that was helped to bring about the book, Chrislam, how missionaries are promoting an Islamized gospel, mm-hmm. which has uh, 25 chapters and 18 contributors we brought together uh, a, the Insider Movement, a critical assessment conference, to fact check the issues of insider movements mm-hmm. on the issues uh, particularly of theology, missiology, and translation. What's kind of messed up about their missiology, their theology, and the translation issues related to the Bible? So mm. I got brought into it through that way. We convened those conferences and then published the book. Hmm. This is probably a good place for me to jump in, Josh. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was with one of those organizations, uh, indeed, uh, that was uh, and is, yeah, and sure. is Islamizing the Bible. Yeah. And I worked with Frontiers, as you know. I was uh, the chief development officer for 15 years, so that means I was the chief fundraiser. 
And sometime in 2009, in my own case, sometime in 2009, I received an email from the International Director of Frontiers who was circulating an article by his wife, Becky Lewis, and he said, this is something we need to consider for the future. So I said to myself, uh, you know what, I really need to figure out what this is all about because I need to be able to know how to present this credibly to the constituency. Donors and others. And uh, exactly, donors and others. And so I read it and I realized this is pretty extreme. And so what happened was I uh, began to read absolutely everything I could get my hands on, on the subject of insider movements. And one of the things that became very clear to me was that one of the essential features of insider movements was the idea that the Quranic Allah is not other than the Jehovah of the Bible. And we held, as an organization, at an official level, that the Allah of the Quran was not the Jehovah of the Bible. But I then began to discover that we were readily promoting this view through courses, through uh, material we would promote. We were not consistent in holding to what we said was our view. And so, as I looked into the whole issue, it took on not simply a theological dimension, but an ethical dimension uh, because of the matter of inconsistency. So I because studied... Because you, you were fundraising. Because I was fundraising. Exactly. And then you were trying to... Right. And they're advocating for these other things. That's right. What I looked at most closely was the exegetical foundation for IM, which is centered on a fairly small cluster of proof texts. And I could not believe how weak the foundation was. And I thought to myself, either I'm missing something or it's really weak. And ultimately it reached the point where I just said, you know what, they really need to figure this out on their own without my help. I really need to move on. And uh, so I uh, ultimately left. So that's my, my background. Okay. So, yeah, my background um, in um, uh, late 2008, I was uh, working with a friend of mine actually in the IT industry and a missionary that um, both my friend and I had known for many um, years, actually decades, had come to us and said he was starting a new ministry. And my friend offered him some office space in the office, and he began his new ministry in the office space with us. And over the course of many months, um, we had a lot of discussions. I started getting a hint of what this IM was about. Um, one of the things that I found challenging is I never got any more information than I already really knew. You know, I'd get little tidbits or little hints, but it was like, I felt like I was peeling the layers of an onion for many, many, many months until I got to the point where I realized that the groups that he was promoting still looked at the Quran as the inspired word of God, looked at Muhammad as a prophet, and denied the divinity of Christ. Mm -hmm. And 
that was about the point where I realized we had a really, really, really serious issue going on here. You know, probably the two biggest red flags for me is when we started dealing with the Muslim idiom translations and translations that were offering alternative language for Son of God and alternative language for Father. And the other one was when I looked at the ecclesiology and realized that these groups would not call or identify with the Christian church, would not work with the Christian church, but they were separate from and different from the Christian church. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was maybe the biggest of all of the issues because, you know, when I look at, for instance, Galatians and Paul's call in Galatians, he had a church that was fracturing between the Jewish sect and the Gentile sect, and his call was to set aside those things that were different and come together as a church. And so I'm seeing one picture in Scripture and an entirely different picture coming from the people who are pushing I am who are not only... Um, allowing for the separation, but actually calling for the separation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those issues with, because I, when I felt this leading to confront the movement in 2009, I prayed through and said, you know, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want me to confront? Mm-hmm. And that Muslim idiom translation yeah. where they're taking out father and son in Arabic and putting Lord or guardian or uh, in son, putting uh, Messiah or something yeah. like that. And also, I'm a scholar on early origins of Islam. <clears throat> so I'd read the biography of Muhammad three times, the first primary source. I knew what Islam was. And so he was involved in 86 battles and was, you know, invo- he had killed 333,000 within four years after the time of his death and a million within 10 years after. So when somebody was trying to say that they're going to go inside Islam, to be a Muslim in the first century is to be a soldier. And that was just very clear in the earliest biographies of Muhammad, the first four in the first 300 years. So as a former Muslim, Fred, you you must have had quite a reaction as well, because I came from studying and researching all that out. How did you experience understanding going somebody going within, within Islam as mm. an insider to a religion that you had actually left for Christ? It's, it's pretty easy for Muslim background people, whether they're still Muslim or whether they are Muslim and have become uh, worshippers of Jesus Christ, to see that there is a real inherent problem uh, with the insider movement paradigm and insider advocates. Though there are different manifestations, not all insider missionaries would say that they're a Muslim, or or maybe not all would perhaps even say that the God of the Quran and the God of the Bible are the same, but there are certain tendencies. Um, But one thing that's for sure part of the insider paradigm is that a person should retain the identity, their religious, socio-religious identity. Now, the problem for Muslims is that you, re- you, you obtain and retain your socio-religious identity as a Muslim by declaring the Shahada. So if, if anyone that's a non-Muslim wants to become a Muslim, they'll go to the local mosque and the imam will lead the person in declaring uh, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is their prophet. And is, that's the Shahada. And that is the Shahada, the, the two witnesses. The, it's a confession of faith. And we know that Muhammad said many things about Jesus that aren't true, that Jesus wasn't Lord, wasn't God. He's not the son of God. He didn't die on the cross, not didn't rise from the dead, not three in one. So the whole heart of the gospel is there. So there has to be something in I am regarding this uh, affirmation of the prophethood of Muhammad that's a mm-hmm. real problem. The, the thing that for me, it's kind of snuck up on me because like all of you and like many people that are 
uh, involved in maybe supporting or involved with insider movements. Many are praying for Muslims. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us have been praying for Muslims for years or maybe decades. And we started seeing those reports. I remember specifically laying my eyes on those those print newsletters, there's even kind of before you get a lot of emails, 522,000 Muslims in Bangladesh, new believers, and rejoice, 522,000. Wow. And this was, a, and I can provide the citation. We started seeing these big numbers. So you'd see one point, you'd see like 300,000, 600,000, 1.3 million, and, and some would say 10,000. And so there's this vast number of differences. Mm. And so you had to fact check, how do you know, how do you verify? Exactly. How many, what are the numbers? What are the real numbers? And that's one of the issues we could talk about, verification results. Mm. These, these things do creep up on you. And I'll, I'll explain <clears throat> how this crept up on me. I resigned from Frontiers in 2000, August of 2009. About a year and a half later, I learned about Muslim idiom translations. And lo and behold, I discovered that I had raised 215000 for one of them. But I had no knowledge of what was actually in that translation. And in fact, I had written the promotional copy for the online appeal on the basis of what had been presented to me and its most superficial features. And then I discovered a year and a half after I left, that all instances of God as Father had been removed and replaced with alternate terms. Son had been selectively removed. And I had sold this, as it were, to trusting and generous evangelicals who generously supported it with no knowledge of what was in it. It had been hidden, and this is part of the whole ethical dimension mm. of the I am and Muslim idiom issue from my vantage point. It seems like, despite those massive numbers, we're having a very hard time finding or identifying any I am leaders who are writing, who are speaking. Uh, you almost could never find one. Um, and so it, it does raise other questions, maybe ethical, maybe reporting wise, mm -hmm. is if there are so many of these believers, where exactly are they? Right. Maybe we could learn from them if they have certain uh, methods or secrets or ideas that could be a benefit to a wider population. Mm -hmm. But up until this point in history, we hardly see a one. I think that's been one of the problems because if you do ask those people that are reporting these numbers, it always is presented back as for security concerns, we cannot let this out. Mm -hmm. So the numbers you have to trust always the people who are reporting the numbers. There's never an independent verification of those mm -hmm. numbers. I think the other thing that is not disclosed is that IAM is essentially an attempt to create a sect within Islam. It's, it's essentially an undertaking to repurpose Islam. And so that objective is masked in communications with uh, Western evangelicals who are committed to church planting or to biblical orthodoxy. And so it is, um, in my experience, it is deceptive. 
Yeah, I, I would go on farther, farther to say when you look at what I am affirms about Jesus, it really is essentially the same thing that Islam affirms about Jesus. It is not the Christian picture of Jesus. It is the Islamic picture of Jesus that they're affirming. So, you know, while it may be a slight modification to Islam as far as a Islamic sect, it is certainly very, very far from the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you know Muslims deny the Trinity, the deity, the crucifixion, salvation by grace alone, and the authority, inspiration, and fallibility of Scripture. And then, so for Christians to go with inside that mm -hmm. in some way, or to encourage people who are Muslims to remain inside that and to follow Islam, Surah five one eleven says, "Believe in Allah, Muhammad is prophet," and bow towards Mecca. These are Muslims. Mm -hmm. That's the passport mm -hmm. identity card. So when you identify with beliefs and practices of Muslims mm -hmm. facing towards a cultic center, towards Mecca, affirming the prophethood of Muhammad, the Quran, and all that goes with that, there's a, a clear distinction from what mm -hmm. Christians believe and remaining with Islam and to the church. That was from a public YouTube video posted by the channel Biblical Missiology. Now let's listen briefly to someone who God used tremendously in leading me to Bible translation— John Piper. In fact, I would say it's unlikely that I would be serving in Bible translation today if it weren't for his ministry. The first thing I want to say is that the impulse to this is good. Hmm. And here's the reason. In America, if, if you're an unbelieving banker, you golf on Sunday morning and you dress like that on, <laughs> on dress down days or yeah. whatever, uh -huh. uh, and you become a Christian. H hardly anything needs to change in your cultural forms. Mm -hmm. You probably go to church now, and you won't commit adultery, and your language might clean up some, and you'll give more to Christ, and you'll, I mean, a lot of things will change, but sure. for the one who's looking, our culture is so uniform that mm. no. Big changes. Whereas in a Muslim culture, at least a, a seriously Muslim culture, all of life is so woven into mm -hmm. the religion that to change almost anything is to wave a flag. I'm not a Muslim anymore, sure. and that so isolates you mm -hmm. from all life. How's life livable? Mm -hmm. And and many then just disappear. Let's just go to the West. Mm -hmm. And so I think the insider movement says. That's not a good idea, you know. Mm. Leaving is not a good idea. Sure. So then the solution is to stay in. So my, my take on it is that while there are ambiguities involved in what cultural forms can remain, like dress, for example, mm -hmm. would surely not be a, a big sure, deal right. for a Christian. But I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's it, mm. it's a good idea to stay in the mosque or okay. to continue to call yourself a Muslim or to refuse, say, to use the term son of God because mm -hmm. it's offensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, on, for those who know this debate, yeah. I'm, I think we should draw the line more or less at C4 rather okay. than C5 so that it would be, in my judgment, uh, misleading, dishonest. And one last point, mm -hmm. when I was in Lausanne um, at the Global Congress on World Evangelization, all the Muslim converts that I met who were there were upset and angry about this movement hmm. because they said life is very hard for us. We're laying our lives on the line and to see Westerners come in here and to advocate that we 
stay Muslim, that we stay in the mosque, that we stay with the Quran, that we stay with some veneration of, of Muhammad is exactly what we're struggling for. So I, there, there are big arguments and disagreements about this in the, in the missiological community, but as far as our church goes, I, I want to help the church see that uh, honesty and integrity and biblical faithfulness is our guideline, mm -hmm. and then uh, give as many pointers as to where that line is drawn. One last thing, yeah. practically. I've really got to listen to our missionaries. I mean, who am I, right? I, I'm not there. I'm not there. And so for me to make pronouncements without any kind of experience. So I want our missionaries to become our advocates. I want the, the guys who, who have thought through biblically, have, have put their lives on the line in, in hard Muslim places. I want them to say, yeah, what John just said is wise. And not just because he said it, but because we've watched it and there are these downsides biblically and sociologically and, and culturally that we should, as a church, draw the line here and encourage all of our missionaries. In fact, I would say require all of our missionaries not to go beyond certain lines. Well, that's interesting because isn't a lot of the pressure on local churches actually coming from some missionaries mm -hmm. bringing back saying, look, this is our hope for a future breakthrough. I yeah. mean, we've been laboring for yeah. decades, yeah. centuries without much fruit, but this is the promise. So a lot of the pressure on local churches comes from the missionaries saying, yeah. this is the way to go. Yeah, the and, then, and then I think a pastor in that situation whose who's veteran missionaries are saying that, then he's going to have to do his own homework, talk to a wider range of missionaries, read the necessary books, go to the necessary conferences, look at his Bible, listen to what they say, and make, make his judgment call. Yeah. Okay. So now we've heard some different perspectives on the issue. I want to reiterate that I applaud the strong desire to reach those who are in darkness and to do so in a way that rejects the idea of forcing people into a Western cultural Christianity mold. I applaud those who love Muslims so much that they are seeking to lay down their lives and prejudices to lead them to the truth. And I myself have experienced this drive more than just about anyone when I was in Equatorial Guinea. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to the series on this podcast about an experiment in oral scripture adaptation. It might even make some people a little uncomfortable to hear the lengths to which we went to reach the Fung people in Equatorial Guinea. But I think scripture gives us plenty of teaching on when contextualization becomes compromise. So my point is that I couldn't be more sympathetic to those who want to contextualize for the sake of the gospel. I totally resonate with the impulse behind insider movements, but do not resonate with where it has ended up. So, we're just scratching the surface of this discussion. There's more to be said, but that will have to be for the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus.